Father, as we open your word and challenge our hearts today and think about what you're doing here at Fellowship Bible Church, would you allow your Holy Spirit to have a great freedom and um, with great definition and clarity to speak to us today as a church congregation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let me give a little introduction to the introduction today. Um, It was my full intention to bring a part two of our Ten Commandments series message on the Sabbath, commandment number four. If you're new with us today, um, you need to know that we've been in the middle of a Ten Commandments series, and I think it's been useful and helpful, and I've heard some chatter, and I know that I've run into people at Walmart, and they say, boy, I've just been thinking about what we talked about, and that's a very great encouragement uh, at any level. Maybe it's because of utter confusion, but people are thinking about the message and what has God spoken spoken to us. And of all the messages that we've done so far out of the Ten Commandments, and we're on number six next, um, uh, I felt like I kind of mucked up commandment number four and left some unanswered questions. And I felt like I wanted to come back and address those questions, and I was working to that end and felt pretty good about it. And something that I rarely ever do... um, I, I had, um, I don't want to really want to call it an experience because uh, it wasn't, I don't think, but it was a prodding in my heart and with some thought um, at about eight o'clock last night, as I was at my dungeon desk, uh, continuing to prepare for this morning in our commandment series, I just had a sense in my mind of distraction about a number of other things that have been going on in my heart and in my thinking. And so this morning, I want to detour off on that, um, that area and just kind of share some thoughts uh, from my pastor's heart to our congregation. I want to encourage us. I want to cast a little bit of vision this morning and share with you a couple things that are going on behind the scenes so that you're aware of that and you know uh, a little bit better how to pray for your elders and, and how to think about things that might be coming down the future and even what part you might play in some of these things. So at some level, uh, this is an unusual Sunday in that I'm just kind of throwing out the message series and I just want to say some things. It might be the kind of uh, time where in some traditional churches with an evening service, the pastor would just kind of speak from his heart at the evening service. And let's just kind of look at this stuff and talk about it. And it would almost be helpful to have a few questions and answers at the end. We're not that developed in, in some of the vision that I want to talk about, but I want to just say some things that I think you need to know about. And so we're going to do that. And um, I trust that it will be helpful. So if you're new to us or this is your very first time with us, in some ways, you're, you're listening in uh, to a pastor challenging the congregation here. You are welcome and we would love for you to be a part of our congregation. But I know that um, as God directs you, that may or may not happen. But know that it's a little bit of a different kind of message today and in fact, the sermon will kind of stop at the end and I will give a talk. Um, um, We preach God's word here. We don't give talks. But at the end, it'll be more of a talk than it will be a sermon. But I trust that the Spirit of God will have great liberty to apply His word and the thoughts today 
that I'm sharing to us corporately as a congregation, there are some of you that need this word perhaps individually in your life and in your framework as to what God is doing in your life that you live up to your full, here's our two words for today, potential and capacity. Will you say those words with me? Potential and capacity. Now, let's illustrate that. We have, we have potential and capacity. We have Bob the Builder's little hammer here, and there's some potential there, isn't there? And a little bit of capacity. And it's useful. Um, Jonathan's worked that one over pretty hard. Looks like it's been left outside a few times. And then there's the big frame and S-wing hammer. Potential and capacity. And they don't match up. They don't each have the same capacity or potential. And one can't look at the other and be critical in a sense. But what they want to do is they want to each fulfill and reach the capacity and the potential that God has given them. That's how I want to speak to our church this morning. Because I really believe and have been thinking about... All of the ways that God has been blessing Fellowship Bible Church, and it occurs to me with no uncertainty that God is beginning to do some kind of a work here and continue a work. This is no great revelation, but I just feel like we're getting out of sixth grade, going into seventh grade, and you haven't seen high school and college yet. That there's something that God wants to do with us as a church And that we have a capacity and a potential that we have not yet reached. My concern is that as a congregation and as a church and as a ministry, that we don't possess this kind of capacity and potential and live out this kind of capacity and potential. Are you with me? So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 and and let's just... um, talk a little bit here this morning. This is our sermon time, not our talk time. This is God's word. We want to take it seriously and I want to challenge your hearts with it. It is not an unfamiliar passage of scripture. It is a very familiar passage of scripture. And as you turn to Matthew 25, let me just share with you some of the thoughts that I've had as to why I believe God wants to do a work at Fellowship Bible Church that he hasn't accomplished yet. First of all, I believe that we have been incredibly blessed with a potential and capacity of property. I live down in the woods down here. I live with my wife and my son in the woods. We do have a house, but it's in the woods. And I walk back and forth at lunchtime um, if I go home for lunch or different times during the day. I will go back and forth and I walk down the fence line right here. And I look at the property and I pray and I think and it's a good time. It slows me down. It quiets my heart a little bit before I get back to the office. And I look at our property. God has really blessed us with a great piece of ground. I don't know if you recognize that there's a cornfield here that last year a guy planted, uh, Don, um, uh, his last name's failing me right now, but uh, brother Don planted Um, the cornfield with his antique tractors. And I don't know if we even made it clear in our accounting, but they gave a $4,000 gift from the surplus profits of the cornfield after they paid for all their fuel and expenses of seed and fertilizer and so forth. And the church benefited for $4,000 for that, uh, just about 15-acre cornfield right there. So this spring, Richard Beto, our full-time property supervisor, said, Pastor Van, let's put in corn ourselves 
The Lord chose to take Don home before the corn was ever harvested. He was so pleased at how it was going. And then one day, God just called him to heaven um, at his home. And, um, you know, there's the cornfield. And Rich said, let's do it. And so we're subbing it out. Um, We're just paying somebody to no-till it. We pay southern states to spray it. We're paying for the seed. You pray for rain and a good harvest. And then maybe the Lord will give us $4,000 minimum of profit. As long as our government chooses to burn corn in car tanks, corn will stay high. And as long as there's a drought in Colorado, corn will stay high. We don't pray for the drought to stay in Colorado. Pray for the rain to come. Did you know what I think when I'm walking back and forth? God did not give us property to plant corn. We're not farmers. We're a church. So what is God going to do with that property? I don't know. There's a lot about the message that I don't know today, uh, which might not be a surprise to many. Um, But I do believe that God has blessed Fellowship Bible Church with an extraordinary capacity and potential for ministry simply because of the piece of ground on which we hold and gather our meetings. Great potential here. Camps are part of it. We'll mention that briefly in a minute. I think it's been interesting to see the kind of people that God has been bringing to Fellowship Bible Church. There have been just some extraordinarily gifted people in leadership, in teaching, in helps, in giving, who have been connecting with Fellowship Bible Church, and I'm amazed. We didn't plan it. We didn't know it was going to happen. We didn't know what God was going to do with our ministry. And let me say that I don't in any way present Fellowship Bible Church as a ministry that has attained or that that we are the leader of ministries. We are not. We are a struggling ministry in many ways. And in a lot of ways, you know, we don't know what we're doing. We're just preaching Christ and God has given increase. But it seems to me as I look around that Fellowship Bible Church is really blessed. Property and people And then we're debt free. How about that? Praise God. And so it seems to me, it seems to me that that God is setting the stage for potential now. You know what potential is, right? Potential is existing in possibility, capable of development into activity. It's something that exists. It's there and it can really happen. You see... This has limited potential for framing a house with 16 penny nails. This has great potential. It has the capacity and the potential in the right hand, used in the right way to accomplish much capacity and potential. Because of our property, because of our people, because of a growing stability in unstable times of financial framework, God has blessed us. I talked to a pastor the other day who's entering a building program. I was stunned. I'm not all critical. I I am not in any way boastful or proud. Um, You know the limitations of your pastor. And you know that um, there's plenty of room for improvement. But by God's grace, we can learn and grow together. I was talking to this pastor and they've started a building program. And and I said, hey, um, do you mind telling me? Because it's public information actually. And in their promotional materials. And I said, how much are you guys borrowing on your building? Is a church a little bit smaller than we are? And he said, we're borrowing 2.5 million. 
He said, we have 500,000 in hand. He said, I wish it was the other way around. I, I reacted. I said, brother, let me give you some advice. Don't ever figure out what the interest is per week because you'll sit on the platform on Sunday morning and you'll watch the offering basket go and go and go and go and go. And then you'll say, there, we've paid the interest for this week. You talk about handcuffing yourself. And I'm not boasting, and I'm, not, I'm humbled. I am humbled that we're debt free. When you borrow money, do you know what you talk about? Money. We want to talk about Jesus, don't we? We want to talk about what God's doing. We want to be as available as possible. Well, I think God has blessed us and has us poised strategically for ministry because of our property, because of our people, because we're debt free. We have potential. There's one other reason I think God wants to do something around here, and it's because in ways that most of you know nothing of, we've been under attack by Satan. There have been attacks and things that have gone on that if, if they were tweaked just a little bit differently, could, could just explode. Nothing of, nothing of the nature of immorality or things like that, but just things where when I'm walking down the fence line and pondering and praying, I think to myself, you better watch out. That's Satan's attack right there. And I have sensed at a greater level than ever in 17 years of leadership here that we have been being attacked by Satan. And it makes me think God must want to do something with us because Satan wants to to damage and give us a black eye and a bloody nose. So you pray for your church. You pray for your elders. By God's grace, all is well and quiet this morning. But I want to look at Matthew 25 for a few minutes. And and I want to challenge us with this familiar text of Scripture about capacity and potential. Capacity and potential. Matthew 25, this is the Olivet Discourse. This is taking place right before our Lord Jesus goes to the cross, right at the end of his earthly ministry. And we're beginning at verse 14, and he says, For it will be like a man going on a journey. What is it? It, if you look up at chapter 25, verse 1, is that the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. The kingdom of heaven, for all practical purposes for us today, is God's agenda. It's what Christ is building with his church. It's it's the authority of Christ over all of the universe. And the kingdom of heaven specifically is what God is doing through his redeeming grace. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. What a moment, huh? What a moment. 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master or the joy of your salvation, your master's joy. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. ESV says, 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take that talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And verse 30 is an incredible verse. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. Now, we don't have a lot of time to unfold this, but you need to know going into it that it's a parable. We weren't going to strain at every point. We're not going to make a point where there's not a point to be made. And in fact, we're kind of skipping on the surface of it this morning. And I want us to apply it to ourselves as church-wide. You apply it to yourself as an individual as the Holy Spirit convicts and shows you areas in your life where maybe you are living below your capacities and your potential. But as a church is how I'm thinking of this. You need to know in this parable that the master who's gone away on a long journey is Jesus. It's Jesus. Okay? And that the servants are God's people who are in the kingdom. All right. We have a little bit of question mark about that number three guy, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. And so as we look at it, you want to say, okay, where am I in this picture? I want to point out seven things that this parable teaches us. Number one is that it teaches us as a church and as individuals, a clear sense of identity. It teaches a clear sense of identity. For the master's servants, notice what it says. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. You know what the word is in Greek? We talked about it not too long ago. It's doulos. It's slave. We're the, we're the king's slaves. Now in church world, that's not a bad thing. That is an overwhelmingly awesome thing. To think that I could be a slave to my master Jesus. And think about what he's done for you. You who are lost in the pit of sin and slime, in all the residuals of a fleshly, dead heart. And one day, you recognized by the grace of God that Jesus had gone to the cross for you, and that he had carried your sin there for you, and that he did something that you had no capacity to do, and that is pay the price of your own sin and, and appease the wrath of a holy God, and and be positioned in righteousness in the, in, the, in the courts of a holy judge. And Jesus did it for you in this, that while you were still a sinner and I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. Amen? 
And he went to the cross and he took our sin, all the dirty, rotten part of it that you don't even want to think about and you're just so ashamed of and you didn't know what to do with it. And you've been to the cross and he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness and new life in Christ and you're born again and now you care about people and you think about God and you want to learn the Bible and you're a new creation in Christ. And what a great privilege to just be his slave, right? Just be the slave of the one who's the master of the universe, who owns it all, who's sovereign over all. And you know, when you get an attitude about being his servant and his slave, that's when you lose the joy of your Christian life. Have you ever noticed that? Well, the first thing we do is we find out our identity. We're slaves. We're servants. The second thing we see in our story is that he defines our arena of responsibility. Look what it says. He calls his servants and he entrusts to them his property, his property. So in this parable, Jesus is telling, he wants us to recognize that we're servants of Christ. He's gone away on a long journey and we now have a responsibility, not with our stuff, not with our agenda, but we have a responsibility with our master's property. Now, I want to say something else very quickly, that as you study out the parable, you will come to the conclusion that ultimately the, the parable is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the great privilege of holding the gospel in your hands and that he's given you light and he's given you the gospel and he wants the gospel to multiply. And that's the underlying foundation of the whole thing here. That's the whole cause of his church and purpose of his church. But along with the gospel... And hasn't he given us great access to his gospel? Any translation you want, as many. I wonder how many Bibles we could stack up if we all went home and gathered our Bibles. You couldn't hold them in a pickup truck. And Christian radio. And excellent teachers. And unlimited internet sites that'll teach you and disciple you on your own even if you want. And free online Bible college if you want it. And the gospel's right there, and we've, had, we've been endowed with it. It's tremendous how much we have. But I also want to include as a church, for the purpose of our message today, that our master has also given us more of his property. And our church, he's given us 50 acres of his property. He's given us resources of all kinds here, along with his gospel. And he has clearly defined our arena of responsibility to be our master's property. He owns it. We don't own it. We start having problems around here when we start, when we start protecting our turf as though it's ours. This is God's turf, right? This is God's work. This is God's property. And he has just blessed us with it. The third thing I want you to see is that the master is fully aware of our ability. The master is fully aware of our ability. Look what he says. He entrusted to his doulos servants his property, verse 15, to one he gave five, to another two, to another one. Look what it says. Each according to his, there it is, his ability. God doesn't ask us to do things that we don't have the capacity or the potential to accomplish. Do you know that? God never asks us or expects us to do things that he doesn't give us the power to do. The fourth thing I want you to see is that along with knowing our abilities, and that applies to us as individuals, it's also, by the way, point number three, um, the master knows our ability, is why we never look down our nose at other ministries. It's why we never drive by a little church and think, wow, that's nothing compared to our church. 
You have no idea what God's doing there, and you have no idea who God bestowed, according to their ability, the responsibility of his property at that ministry. And furthermore, we're having a tough enough time keeping track of our own territory here and responsibility. We would never look at another ministry. We pray for the success of other Bible preaching ministries all across our community and all around our state and all around the world, always. We never become haughty. Do you remember when Saul didn't kill off the Amalekites and Samuel came and confronted him and God took the kingdom away from him in Israel of old? Samuel looked at Saul and he said, When you were little in your own eyes, didn't God make you king over all of Israel? And when he became puffed up and haughty, it toppled his kingdom. And churches do it all the time. Pastors do it all the time. You begin to think you're something. And the next thing you know, your your wheels are off, you're upside down, and you're in the ditch. Well, the fourth thing I want you to see is that there is a limited window of opportunity. There is a limited window of opportunity. Look what it says at the end of verse 15. And then he went away. The master went away. And don't you know, just by the way it's stated there, and then what it says in verse 19, after a long while he returned, and then the way it's going to say that the guy with five talents and two talents immediately went to work, Don't you know that when the master went away, they understood exactly what was happening, didn't they? They understood that he was coming back. And they understood that they didn't know how long they had. They had a limited window of opportunity. Lesson number five that we want to notice here is that there is always a certain degree of uncertainty as we try to multiply the Lord's resources. There is always a certain degree of uncertainty. Lesson number five, notice what I mean here. He who had received, verse 16, the five talents went at once and traded with them. Note those two words. He began to invest them and trade them. Anybody here who knows anything about investing or trading, do you think that he was totally confident that he knew the outcomes ahead of time? In fact, the guy with the five talents might have been as humbled and surprised as anyone that by the time the master came and when he came that he had actually doubled five of them. He didn't know. He's out trading. And there's a risk involved. And so you say, well, what's God doing? What does God want me to do? I I need to live by faith. i got to take some steps forward here. I need to take the resources, human and divine, that God has blessed me with. And I don't want to sit on them. I don't want to bury them. I want to multiply them. That's when the risk begins, isn't it? That's when it starts. And your palms start to sweat. How am I supposed to do this? I have no clue. God will show you, and he didn't ask you to do something. He didn't give you ability to do or a capacity to do. Number six that I want you to see, though, is very important, and it is that the master absolutely expects productivity. The master absolutely expects productivity. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came, and the first thing he does is what? He settled accounts with them. He settled accounts. It doesn't even act like he went out to dinner first. He's like, hey guys, I'm back. What did you do? There's that expectation and he expects productivity. Notice by his responses, the two to to the one in verses 21 and 23. Notice that in the guy with five and the guy with two who doubled. And by the way, notice that it was an equal percentage of, of increase, right? That's another reason we don't look down our nose at anybody who's not like us in in the ministry and what God is doing. 
Because the guy with 10, with 5, made it 10, and the guy with 2 made it 4. Yes, a different capacity, but they each maintained their potential, didn't they? They each, they each succeeded in doubling what, what their master's property was, and so they were equal in their percentage of growth. And notice that they each got the same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Are you living for that day, my friend? Sometimes when I meet with broken people, and sometimes I remind myself of this, sometimes I'm a broken person, um, you, you say, listen, I know that this plan did not unfold the way you dreamed it. I know that you feel crushed right now. I know that you are, you are feeling overwhelmed with the, the wickedness and the sinful responses of people around you. And you don't know what to do. But do you know that we're here for but a moment? Do you know that it's a limited window of time that we're going to live? And can you imagine? Can you imagine getting to heaven? And, and your spiritual eyes are open. And there's Jesus. And he looks at you and he says, hey. Well done, man. Well done, my daughter. Well done, my son. You had great adversity. You had your, your knees knocked out from under you and you kept your eyes on Jesus and you kept moving forward. Shouldn't the well done just drive us always? Shouldn't it break us out of the doldrums? Shouldn't it keep us a little bit from feeling so sorry for ourselves? If it's real, and it is, and if one day we're going to look in our master's eyes and we're a doulos, and he says, well done, what else is there to live for? I don't think we think like that. Compared to the guy with one who buried it, Look what he says. He says, well done. But then comparing in verses 26 and 27, look what he says. But his master answered him. And notice in verse 25, he says, I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. What a moment. And the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. That's incredible. Can you feel, can you feel that the master absolutely expects productivity in those responses? Now, I know he's a God of all grace. I know he's a loving Lord Jesus. But I'm going to be really embarrassed if I stand before the Lord one day and he's looking to see what we accomplished with this and I hold up this and say, but I was afraid. It's serious, isn't it? Our capacity, our potential, the gospel... The resources, human and divine, that he's blessed us with? They take that guy. They throw him in outer darkness. Look at number seven in our final lesson. There is a definite day of accountability. That's in verse 19. The master returned. Also for the guy with the one talent that he hit it. It was the moment of accountability. And he was sunk. And it said, cast him out into outer darkness, this worthless servant. People always want to know, well, what about that guy? Was he saved and lost his salvation? What happened with them? Here's what I think. Here's what I think part of the lesson is. I think that to bear no fruit in your life, especially when it comes to the riches of the gospel, and you show no evidence of bearing fruit from the gospel in your life like that guy, he had... The master's resource. There is no greater resource that our master has given us than this book and the gospel. 
And with that resource, he put it out of his life. He put it out of his vision. He just put it away and he just gave it back. It would be like going to heaven and saying to Jesus, here, you can have your Bible back. And you did nothing with your Bible. It would be like taking the cross of Christ that came at such great cross and just giving the cross back to him and saying, here, you can have your cross back. I knew you'd want me to keep it safe. You did nothing with the cross. You didn't lift high the cross for the nations. You didn't show others and your neighbors. And so I think this guy wasn't saved and lost his salvation. This guy never was saved. This guy, the gospel never took root in him. This guy was an imposter. This guy was one of the guys who looked like a servant, but he didn't care about his master's agenda. In his heart, he didn't care enough to take a risk. In his heart, he didn't care enough to invest himself. And he just put it out of his life. And on the day of accountability, it was a serious matter. I think there's some really valuable lessons there for us. Now I'm going to talk to you. I've been preaching at you, at us, and now I want to talk to you. Now you don't have to hold your breath or get sweaty hands because this isn't that big of a deal. It's just some things that I really want our church to care about and that I really think that if we're not careful, we will live below our capacity and our potential in these areas. Two areas specifically, kids camps and church plants. Let me share a couple thoughts. We're entering our camping season. And you know, camps are a lot of work. And I really believe that God has given us this property partly to reach boys and girls in our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to say a lot about camps, but I do want to challenge you to pray for our camps. There's cards available on the back counter. Will you pray that God will do a mighty work in the hearts of boys and girls all summer? Keep us safe, but explode the gospel in the lives of children. The number one reason that we do our day camps, four different weeks of day camp, one week of teen week, five busy weeks. That makes the summer go quickly when you have five full weeks, because every other week you have to be ready for the next camp. And it's okay to be selective. Your kids don't have... I'm not telling you to get your kids at every camp. You've got to manage your world. But I am telling you, if you know some boys and girls who don't know Jesus, will you get them to camp? Nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, couched out here on this beautiful property. And I don't know where God's taking us. I'm praying that God's going to give us the 36-acre woods right here. Oh, my word, Pastor Van, why are you doing that? I don't know. It's just always on my heart. We ought to buy that woods right there. Because I think that God uses camping in an extraordinary way to reach the hearts and minds of boys and girls when it's done correctly. I think there's something about being outdoors, under the sun, all day, getting bit by mosquitoes, getting poison ivy, getting chiggers in your privates. Just, it's a great thing. And I think that our teenagers grow and develop and in their leadership as they lead those teams. Our adults develop in their leadership and kids can get to know Jesus Christ. They can find out that they're a sinner and they can find out that they have a God who loves them and who gave Jesus Christ to die for them. And do you think that they're getting that message all around here? A lot of them are not. I don't know what they're doing, but they're not hearing too much about the gospel in a lot of even Sunday schools around here. In fact, they don't have Sunday school. And I'm telling you that I really believe that we need to take our camp seriously and that God did not give us the property to to plant corn. He gave us the property to reach kids and families for Christ. 
The second thing that camps do, involving young people in creation, is it opens their eyes to the fact that not only do they have a God who's been kind to them and given them a a Lord Jesus to carry their sin and who loves them and who has a plan for their lives and who will wash away their sin and regenerate them and make them brand new in Christ, but they have a God who created them. And I want to tell you, this has been weighing on me strongly. I want to scream it out lately. I've on a renewed emphasis. I don't know where it's going, but we have got to fight for creationism. And I am so sick of the results of evolution in the minds of our young people. And if you think our kids don't believe evolution is true, you're wrong. Many of the kids, and many of you adults, oh, you can't think of evolution probably happened. You all those smart people. Evolution is utter nonsense. And it contradicts the Bible. And it teaches you that you don't have a creator and that you're a higher form of animal. That's what it teaches. Well, I'm talking about theistic evolution. There is no such thing as theistic evolution. I hate that stuff. I, had to, I got asked to write a blog for a paper. I'm talking. I'm not preaching. You can get up and leave anytime you want, I guess. <laughs> and um, we had the offering, so you can go. But um, <laughs> that was a joke. And... Um, I had to write a blog for the West Virginia Family Policy Group, and they assigned it, and I said, yes, I'll do it. And It was at the time that the Supreme Court was having their decision, and before they postponed, we thought there might be a final decision on the, on the definition of marriage from our su- Supreme Court. And I, I wrote an article called Termites in the Basement. And I said, everybody's looking at the roof, and the roof, indeed, of our moral house is caving in on us right now. We don't even know what a marriage is. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you're wasting your time trying to fight against that marriage thing. It's a done deal. The roof has caved in. You're not going to put the roof back. You need to go down in the basement, and you need to get your flashlight out, and you need to look and see how the termites have eaten the beams, and the termites are the termites of evolution. And until you change the minds of our culture and our country that evolution isn't true, you will never teach them that there's a God. Excuse me. Evolution undermines the authority of God's word and who God is and what God has planned for his people. All right. So you got to care about camps, right? And you pray for Pastor Everett as he heads them up and all of our, um, and all of our, I don't know if anybody opened that yet. Excuse me for being a distraction. But here's where I really wanted to go, and time is waning. Why kids camps? Why kids camps at Fellowship Bible Church? Because we need to reach boys and girls with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 80% of everybody who ever comes to know Christ is a proven fact, does so before the age of 18. Secondly, to teach them that they have a creator. I would love to see us build an old rough sawboard, board and batten, stone foundation, long front porch, creation museum right out there with all these things that evidence God's creative power in our little creation museum cabin. Why not? Why wouldn't we have a place like that where you homeschoolers can come and, and take your children and study creation in our woods out here and maybe our, um, our public schools... Maybe some of you teachers in the public school would get permissions on field trip and come out in our woods and do little research projects and see all of our little artifacts and our little creation museum. It's not that hard to do. Everywhere you look, it defies creation, and you can set up these def- displays. It's easy. It's fun. But why church plants? And this is a big reason why I wanted to share this. I, I need to share with you some things that are going on behind the scenes that I, I don't know what God is doing. 
And I want to tell you, most of this is unsolicited. It's dropped in our laps. I have a document that I put together to capture all of what's going on in this area that our elders have been looking at and using as a guide. It's a grid and it's a box and it's, it's got location and then it's got leadership and then a description and, and geographic description, factors for consideration, and then the need scale, low is one, ten is great, and then questions and comments. And down this column are seven boxes, seven potential ministries that need either restarted or started that God is crisscrossing into our church right now and you don't even know about it you know about Bakerton it's one of the boxes and it hasn't imploded it's kind of hung in there they're doing pretty well keep praying for them we need leadership and we need to think about a building and adding ministries we didn't go looking for Bakerton I did a funeral for a lady and an old man at that funeral walked up to me and said Pastor Van when are you and Fellowship Bible Church going to come take over our church what am I supposed to do with that Ah, never. (laughs) And you could say, well, just because there's a need doesn't mean you have to meet it. No, but it seems that God plops this stuff in our laps. You know, because we're debt-free and because we've been thinking a little bit at the leadership level about church planting, we have an account for church planting for the last couple years in our budget. We squirrel away $500 a month in our church planning account. You don't know it, but three weeks ago, we flew a guy in here from Master's College Seminary in California. Matt White showed, uh, turned us on to him and gave us his information about him. He's a 38-year-old guy. He just finished seminary. He's a sharp young leader. We have another ministry that God plopped in our lap through Pastor Johnson at Independent Bible Church. There's a big, beautiful brick building sitting alongside Route 11 up in Greencastle that for 20 years was Greencastle Bible Church, and now it's sitting there empty for three and a half years, ready to go right now. Flip the light switch on, the pulpit, the piano, it's clean, everything's there. Sitting there empty for three and a half years. They want, the old man calls up Mark Johnson at Independent Bible Church, so then he calls me up. What am I supposed to do with that? No. And he says, will you help me figure out what to do with Greencastle Bible Church? So we take the money and we fly a guy out and we're trying to twist his arm and show him Greencastle Bible Church. This is for you, buddy. (laughs) And you know what he says? He keeps saying, what you got on that chart there? Let me see that chart. He saw the chart. I made a big mistake showing him our chart. I said, oh man, that's some stuff that keeps coming our way. There's some things, there's... And I don't want to tell you about them. I don't want to tell you where they are. It's way premature, but it's what the elders are thinking and praying about. I don't want to, we're, we're not starting churches right now. We're thinking about it and praying about it and need you to know about it. And so the guy goes back to Master's Seminary. He writes us back and he says, hey, I don't want to go to Greencastle, Pennsylvania, but I really want to go over there. I'm telling you, it's on my heart. My wife, we're praying about it. It's God's will for us to come. What are you guys going to do? So right now, today, we got a guy sitting by his keyboard at his, looking for his email from me to tell him whether or not we're going to plant a church in one of these spots that he says, that's God's will, let's do it. So I need you to pray for us. I don't know. I don't know what to do. You know I don't know what to do. I'm not lazy. I'm incompetent. All right? I work hard. I just don't know what I'm working at. And that's, you know, our elders are unified. We're praying. We're thinking. We're growing. Why would we plant churches? Why should Fellowship Bible Church, first of all, it's biblical, Right? It's biblical, the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world, big G-O, go. Don't sit and, and, and just sour. 
In Acts chapter 1, along with the Great Commission, when Jesus went, ascended up into heaven, didn't he say, I'm going back to be with my Father. I'm going to come again. And when I come again, I'll receive you unto myself. In the meantime, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Take my gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit and go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, and go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Judea is Shenandoah Junction in Charlestown. Excuse me, Jerusalem is Shenandoah Junction. Judea is Jefferson County in West Virginia. Samaria is the greater United States and the uttermost parts of the world are the uttermost parts of the world. We have a responsibility. It's biblical. I think that our master who's gone away on a long journey has given us a capacity and a potential and for some reason right now he keeps shooting these zingers at us right now. What about this? What about this? And I got another pastor who calls me. I got 15 people left in my church. Why don't fellowship come take over? Yeah, right. I'd like to at least go home for lunch today. Got... You know, it's biblical. Well, not only that, church planting isn't just biblical, but church planting, I think, at Fellowship Bible Church should really be natural. Think about it. 21 years ago in Woody Beto's sunroom, Pastor Johnson met with six or eight people and Jim and Sue and, and had a Bible study. And out of that comes Fellowship Bible Church and hasn't God used it? And then in 2008... Lowell McDonald is signing up his kids for soccer in Spring Mills Elementary School. And he's looking around and he doesn't see anybody that goes to Independent Bible Church. And there's hundreds of parents there. And he calls our youth pastor, Billy Hearn, and he says, let's start a church at Spring Mills by the new Walmart. So they do. They're five years old. This September, September 8th, I will be the guest speaker in their church on their fifth anniversary already. They run about 180 to 200 people a Sunday. And they're planning a church there. They have their church. God is using it. They're busy about the work of the gospel. Don't you think that Independent Bible Church to Fellowship Bible Church to Centerpoint and then out of Fellowship, the Bakerton restart, we now have a beginnings of a very tangled web. But wouldn't it be natural for churches to just keep starting then? I think it's also practical. Thirdly, it's practical. It's biblical. It's natural. It's practical. And this is just to stir your thinking. It's getting comfortably full in here, isn't it? Do you know we just sent 25, 30 people, or we, we didn't just send, but 25 or so of our people were at Bakerton Bible Church this morning. Did you miss them? You don't even know who they are. And the seats, there's still seats. We can still grow like this. It doesn't hurt. You can leave a little bit of airspace, put some hymnals between you or something, and you'll be all right. But what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Fellowship doesn't grow fast, but we grow slowly and steadily. How long will it take us to get two and a half million dollars to build a new building? Say a long time, Pastor Van. A long time. How many of you think it's a good idea right now to go borrow two and a half million? Say it's not a good idea, Pastor Van. It's not a good idea. Guess what old Pastor Van wants to do? Put another modular out back. Put a fence around it, secure it, make it a secure wing for children's ministries. What are we going to do? We'll add another service eventually. We can do that, right? We have a, it's good. So I don't know what all God's doing, but I'm telling you, practically speaking, why are people coming from Brunswick and from Loudoun and from South Berkeley and Boonesboro and Hagerstown? Why would you drive here to church? That doesn't make any sense. And it's not because we're such a great church. It's a statement about how bad it is in church world out there. I think that's what it is. 
But why wouldn't we help get Bible churches going in these communities? And we want to be careful and considerate of the Bible-centered ministries that are there. And I'm not trying to create work. But I need you to know that this is part of the conversation that's going on. We've been having good elders meetings. They're thinking strategically. They're prayerfully evaluating what are the needs here internally. We recognize there's needs to disciple, needs to fellowship, needs to grow, needs for teaching, needs for more stable and secure children's ministries. And they're working on those things. And I go home from elders meetings lately and I say, that was a good elders meeting. We really worked on the priorities that God would have for us. You pray for us as we seek God's will. I don't know what God's doing here, but he's given us a lot of, what are our two words? Capacity and potential. And I don't want to stand before him one day. You lazy servant. Because it takes work. You lazy servant. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. So, Father, uh, we need wisdom. We need a special grace. I don't want to make up things. I don't want to... I don't want to create a false vision in any way, but it really appears that you are at work and that you have a desire for Fellowship Bible Church, giving us this great property, giving us a great kids camp program that's, that's done so well and can continue to grow and develop and impact kids for Christ. And then as you've opened doors here, Lord, and you've just plopped things in on us about these seven potential plant ministries or restart ministries, we need your wisdom, we need your strength, and we need you to show us what to do. But Father, we want to take your gospel, and we want to take your resources, and we want to multiply them. So would you please show us as individuals and families and as a church how to do that. And that as we travel down this dusty and weary road that we know that you lead us, you'll never forsake us, you guide and direct us, and we'll count upon you to help us know what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.